Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome to the very first episode of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. For the last two years, nothing has sucked up more of our attention than the COVID-19 pandemic. When I was considering how to start a podcast about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, I couldn't help but think of infectious diseases because we're living through the worst public health crisis in over 100 years. There is a direct parallel to the 1918-1919 pandemic. It's eerie, in fact. The Great Flu, otherwise known as the Spanish Influenza, was very much like COVID-19, an N1-H1 pathogen that made the leap from animals to humans and defied the medical world. Those who caught the flu strain, much like those who had caught COVID, got symptoms like a sore throat, a headache, or a fever. And like COVID, the Spanish flu came in waves, with the second one being the deadliest. Symptoms in the second wave intensified, and during the winter of 1918 to 1919, the number of infections and deaths increased dramatically. No doubt, the troop movements at the end of the Great War spread the infection. But the reaction from public health experts will sound familiar to all of us. There were calls to keep your distance, to wear a mask, common refrains nowadays. Still, the flu had devastating effects. An estimated 500 million people were infected, which is more than 60% of the global population at that time. And conservative estimates suggest that 20 million people died. If we take to the high end of the estimates, 50 million or more died. And in some island communities, it was even more devastating. Interestingly, the pattern of deaths differed from COVID. COVID tends to impact older communities, whereas the great flu had the worst impact on younger communities. Now, despite the death toll and the public health crisis that it caused, most of us have paid little attention to this episode of Global History until 2020. And today I'm joined by a historian who has spent much of the lockdown showing us the remarkable similarities between the two pandemics. Allow me to introduce Professor Christopher McKnight Nichols, the director of the Oregon State University Center of Humanities and an expert on American foreign policy. His book, Promise and Peril, America at the Dawn of a Global Age, is absolutely essential reading if you want to understand the way the United States operated in the world from the 1890s to the 1940s. He explains how ideas like isolationism came to define policies that were remarkably internationalist. 
And even more tantalizing is Professor Nichols's co-edited book with Professor Nancy Unger, a companion to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Its name means that it will be of interest to any podcast listeners. And it includes contributions on race, gender, economics, and the cultural evolution of the country. More recently, Professor Nichols has published Rethinking American Grand Strategy, a collection of essays about grand strategy or the broad aims of American foreign policymakers. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we're talking about the 1918 influenza, and we have some ideas about the devastation that um, that was wrought by the great flu, death toll, infection rates. Uh, tell me, though, how did the pandemic change life for people? Well, uh, so the first wave of the pandemic, which went around the globe um, in the months from roughly February, March 1918 uh, through May, June 1918, um, didn't affect people as much as you might think. So, of course, they didn't know, uh, uh, unlike we were aware, uh, that a global pandemic was spreading. Um, so some of the cutting edge kind of headlines and wisdom about what was happening with the flu then as it emerged and seems to have had vectors coming out of places like Kansas um, and, and spreading across the Atlantic then through Europe and around the world um, was that they thought it maybe it was the, the grip or heavy cold or pneumonia, um, but people weren't dying. They called it the three day fever. Um, so, you know, there weren't lockdowns in the first wave. There, there weren't major sort of scandals or issues. Um, there, there weren't everyday kinds of issues uh, of the sorts that we attribute to, you know, um, when COVID was spreading, or, or in fact, when we tend to think about pandemics, the kind of catastrophic potential damage to the health system, to the workforce, to the economy, um, and the kinds of ways in which we tend to think about, so how did it affect people? Could they do their jobs? Could they take care of their loved ones? You know, that wasn't a problem in the first wave. Um, people recovered pretty rapidly. You know, one data point that I love to cite is, you know, something like 10,000 members of the British uh, fleet went to um, sick bays uh, on their on their respective ships and in their port facilities, and only about four died. So that's the first wave. Not not that not that catastrophic. But the second wave is when you get to this sort of transformative social experience that really informs the world we live in today. Yeah, no, that that sounds like everything that I've read about the 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 epidemic is that it's really the second wave that comes through, and we saw that in COVID in some ways as well. And I mean, I think the thing on everyone's mind is, can we, you know, can we draw some parallels between uh, COVID and the flu, the, the the great flu, and and if so, what are they? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. Um, so one of the things that scholars of the flu pandemic, 1918. Um, 1919 have been talking about is suffering, narratives of suffering, um, that we need to foreground those. That So um, one thing that we've been caught up with, frankly, you know, in this pandemic, uh, and that happened during and immediately after that pandemic was uh, a preoccupation with numbers, uh, the abstractions related to, you know, um, infections, deaths in particular, questions of, you know, what's an excess death? How do you count death? You know, is, is, is uh, the flu the primary cause of death? Is it pneumonia? Uh, if you look at tables from that era, you'll find you know, pneumonia uh, plus influenza is the way they tend to think about it. Um, you know, and, and you saw this too, there's, and there's an inherent politic to that, how you count the numbers. You saw this in the US in particular, but around the world, you know, are we inflating the numbers? Are we deflating the numbers? That sort of thing. So historians have sort of emphasized that social historical experience. And that's why your initial question was a good one. You know, if you look at individual lives, if you, you, you look at letters, you look at diaries, you look at memoirs, 
Um, you look at these searing accounts by doctors, um, nursing shortages, you find these multiple and overlapping kinds of narratives of suffering, um, people suffering because of the deaths of loved ones, you know, uh, the, the number of orphans, um, the, how many people uh, survive, but survive in dire straits. I mean, this is something also that we've been worried about thinking about. I, I had a conversation with a friend the other day thinking, you know, eventually we're all going to get COVID, but I'm afraid of long COVID, she said, you know, and this was the sort of thing you see, you actually see this in the literature of the 1920s and 1930s. Um, see it in Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, for instance, people walking upstairs uh, and, and having to catch their breath uh, or, you know, getting sweats, uh, doing, you know, regular daily, everyday activities like running errands. Um, and that's the long suffering, the long tail of suffering for survivors. And then there's another element of that too um, that scholars talk about in terms of survivor guilt or contagion guilt. All right, so we were able to, people like perhaps you and me, uh, professors, we could remote work. Um, so it wasn't as hard for us uh, to do our jobs, to live our lives, to get some, uh, you know, some sufficient remuneration to put uh, food on the table. But other people had to do frontline work before there were vaccines and, and even currently in so many places. And so those who survived in 19, after 1918 had this kind of guilt about the people who died or suffered um, and their ability to avoid that or family members' ability to avoid that. Or frankly, there's one other version of that, um, the people who didn't help their friends and family members, uh, people in their communities who were sick. Because, and that was largely due to misinformation and fear. And that's another piece of the puzzle in thinking about suffering. There's, a, there's other elements. There's a lot of clear parallels. The most obvious one uh, between 1918 and 19 and today, and this is something all the historians of this were shouting from the rooftops in roughly February and March 2020, was non-pharmaceutical interventions. We know they work. You know, what are those? That's social distancing. That's things like hygiene, hand washing, masking, uh, limiting the number of people indoors, not having huge super spreader events. I mean, it's basic public health. And uh, frankly, because of the World War I context of the 1918 flu, we have amazing data on this. You know, the wartime states, the modern bureaucracies, you know this as well as I do with what you study, right? You know, they were keeping track of their troops and their material. They were keeping track of their citizens, their workforce, production related to the war. They knew, uh, you know, who was out of the workforce. They knew how many soldiers were in. Uh, in the infirmaries. Uh, they knew who wasn't combat effective. Uh, now, there was an incentive during the war to minimize that. You see propaganda and lies and outright obfuscation about the severity of that set deadly second wave in the fall of 1918. Um, but the most important piece of that puzzle is that public health officials were able to clamp down on spread in a number of cities. And we have this you know, clearly um, demonstrated in the data in France, in, in England, in the US, um, and in a number of other places, uh, and, and that that worked to minimize death to what we call now, you know, to flatten the curve. Um, and the fact that some people uh, in, in 2020 said that there wasn't enough information about how these worked, you know, all the historians, all the public health scholars said, wait, no, we know very definitively what works. Proactive early measures work to stop spread, infection, and death. Now, it won't, minim it won't end that, right? Viruses can get out. But, uh, we, you know, you can look at this. Uh, there were some, some charts and graphs. Maybe we could throw some up uh, in show notes. You know, if you compare cities that didn't put on proactive measures early versus ones that did, and you can see that how much better they fared. And then there's one other element of that, which is an, it's an important one for us today. The cities that threw on those uh, public health measures early um, bounce back more rapidly as well. So their economies actually did better. And so there's a good argument that economists make. There's some scholars at the Fed in the US who've made this argument consistently 
the, the quicker you are to prioritize public health and the longer you hold those things on, actually the, the more rapidly um, the economy can, can come back um, and at least uh, come back to you know, uh, a level at which uh, you're fairly content with questions of employment um, and people's risk uh, tolerance if there's still a, a virus around, which of course was true after 1918, which is really important to note, right? That flu becomes endemic. It's the seasonal flu that we know about today. So it's not like there aren't still people dying of the flu in 1920 or 21, the so-called roaring 20s. The flu's still out there and a lot of people are still dying much, much more than you would expect. Um, nevertheless, economies bounce back, people go back to work, and there isn't the same level of fear. I think that's one of the most interesting things that, you, that, you know, the flu that we're living with today is the flu that so ravaged, you know, the world in the beginning of the 20th century. And, I, you know, there's, there's so much that I want to talk about there. I mean, from mental health and suffering and pain. Uh, but I just want to bring you back to leadership really quickly, because that's around where you finished. And I wanted to ask you about, I think one of the things that COVID has led me to ponder so much is that what's the incentive for politicians to act early? You know, we've seen a lot of politicians leave it to the last minute before making any decisions, whether it's mask mandates or, or, or whether it's, you know, urging people to take the vaccine. How do we convince um, voters and the American public or, or any public that, that this is important? And I suppose, you know, the same could be said to all threats to public safety. Yeah, so you know the comparison to 1918 and 19 is an interesting one, and could lead us into several different directions. So one is, you know, there was more deference in that era to experts. You know, it's the era of technocracy, progressive experts. You know, even many scholars argue social control. You know, we experts want to run everything, right, kind of thing. Um, but there was a lot more deference to them, and so you know, um, the, the challenge in that moment was, you know, which experts would be believed. And you might argue that that's still our challenge, right? That there's so much misinformation coming from people. Who, who are purported experts, uh, and you can choose your own expert, right? Uh, so, so that that kind of dilutes the rhetorical possibilities for politicians and others, right? So if, if, if you have a really persuasive politician today, could they beat out your chosen expert? You know, uh, it's an open question, I'm not sure. But in that era, you know, you didn't have the partisan politics of, uh, in, the, in the US in particular, um, of mask wearing or closure policies. So, you know, it didn't map on neatly to Republican or Democratic um, politics. There, you know, it was politicized in the sense that they argued, you know, uh, the Republicans or Democrats would argue you're prioritizing saloons over churches and this sort of thing, or certain demographic groups. It dovetailed with racism. You know, you're, you're prioritizing Irish, Irish folks who want to drink. You know, you saw this in, in the Southwest in certain elections. And the, the election of 1918, the midterm elections, was held at the height of the flu pandemic. It was held. Some polling stations couldn't open. There weren't as many, you know, um, polling uh, volunteers as there normally would have been. But but it was held. That election was held with a lower turnout. Um, so but so how do you get back? Getting back to the core question, you know, how do you create persuasive rhetorics? You know, in that moment, in that era, what was largely tapped into was patriotism in the U.S. and it and it comes right out of World War One. Um, and, it, you know, this language that we've heard uh, more recently, but that was developed there was mask slackers, right, which comes um, from the concept of draft slackers, that you're not doing your part if you don't show up for the draft and serve in the army. Mask slackers were those who weren't doing their part for their community by wearing masks. And you see this in particular in places like San Francisco, the so-called masked city. Um, but you see it in lots of other places. There's masking really is, is very uh, prominent from the Midwest to the West Coast because that got hit just a little bit later than the East Coast in the U.S. And you saw those kind of measures um, being adopted, partly out of a, a kind of model of behavior, uh, behaviors that indicated you were taking the 
uh, pandemic seriously. So even people who maybe thought masks weren't so great, and you can see this in some fascinating political cartoons, um, they did it because others in their communities uh, needed to have that signal to them, right? Uh, and they did it because, and this is back to your core question, one of the things that, that local and city officials often did was require all the public officials wear masks. And once you have public officials masked, um, then that has a kind of ramifying effect throughout society. So if the bus driver has to wear a mask and the people picking up trash on the street have to do that and police officers have to do that, suddenly you're seeing a whole lot of officials in their official capacities wearing masks and doing the other kinds of behavior. For instance, enforcing quarantine laws by hammering things on the door if there's people in that house who shouldn't leave because they've got, you know, uh, influenza. Yeah, but the just the core of your question and the reason I'm saying is it is incredibly hard from the historical record to figure out what kinds of rhetorics will work here. Patriotism seems like one, you know, collective sacrifice. Um, but that was peculiar to that World War One moment. I mean, there's lots of insidious problems with patriotism. Um, Christopher Capizola has this great book, Uncle Sam Wants You, uh, you know, and in, in, uh, about the World War One era and questions of citizenship. And, you know, so much of that is wrapped up in racism and xenophobia, who counts as an American. Um, and so, you know, when you make appeals to patriotism, you often are doing as much to exclude people as to include people. And so, you know, while a, a call for patriotic sacrifice might be effective rhetorically, you know, you'd have to be very careful about how you put that together for fear of, you know, the kinds of things we've already seen in divisions across, you know, Europe and the US in terms of hyper-nationalism rising in recent years. I think though that paints a pretty um, a pretty good picture of what the the beginning of the 1920s is going to be that American first idea. But well, we we see that today, whether it's from the Republicans, the the Trump Republicans that are still you know saying America first. We've got this weird parallel where America first almost worked to 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 bring people together and be more, I guess. Uh, receptive to, uh, to to government initiatives for public health. On the other hand, you've got the complete opposite nowadays, where America first is almost a a rebel call for uh, for you know obstructing that 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 policy. So fascinating stuff. Yeah, and I can't help but say I, I got to toss this in, right? So in the in the election 1916, Charles Evans Hughes versus Woodrow Wilson both have America First uh, as campaign platform items, and in 1920 you see America First uh, in, in both campaigns as well. Um, and so it's very much of this era and, and this prioritizing of you know who and what counts at home, and and both Democrats and Republicans repeatedly argue against hyphenated Americans that they're the problem um, in American politics and society, and you and you see that too in the battles over mask wearing. So there's a fascinating series of events and we're still excavating this history from the legal records. Um, who was getting arrested for not wearing masks in places like San Francisco? And very often it's ethnic Americans. Very often it's first generation folks. Now, why are they objecting to masks or why are they not wearing them or why do they not have them? We're not entirely sure, um, but it's pretty clear that the carceral state, the eyes of the police are on these ethnic, uh, uh, usually almost always men um, doing sort of uh, regular everyday kinds of blue collar work. Uh, and so you, you see that this America first sort of turning its, it's um, penal gaze against uh, the, the lower classes, the immigrant lower classes is so palpable in this period and it infects and inflects even how people thought about the flu and, and preventing the flu. 
for, for me, this is why this is such a powerful moment. Just like I think we're living through this powerful moment right now and why the pandemic, why this is the first podcast, this is the first one that's going to go out is because it just allows you to see this whole cross-section of American life and American experiences in, in a way that um, not every episode in history can do. Um, and I, I've got to bring you back to the suffering that you were talking about before, because one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about was mental health. I know in the war, we get the um, introduction of shell shock as a concept, really. And what we're also getting now, I think, in our current context with the COVID pandemic, is this sense of depression and anxiety, loneliness. And I was just wondering, was there a parallel back in 1918? I think you alluded to it a little bit, that maybe people were thinking about loneliness and mental health a little bit more. Yes, they, they certainly were, and uh, on the back end especially, you find in diaries, and I mean that temporally, um, so you find in diaries uh, and, and even in letters to the editor, in late in the second wave, so let's say late fall, November, December 1918, and into early that winter, so January, February, in most cities, you're starting to see a major die down of, of flu infections. And in rural areas, it, it's, it's uh, tapered off quite significantly. At that point, people are taking stock. Um, so uh, I'll just zoom out for one more second to give some context. The month of October 1918 in the U.S. is the most deadly month by far. Almost 200,000 Americans die in that month alone. Um, in, in cities like Philadelphia, at the beginning of that, the end of September, you were seeing you know, 700, 1,000 people dying a day. Uh, the, the, the buggies that were drawn by clergymen, um, that, that clergymen were driving, uh, the horse-drawn buggies, um, couldn't, simply couldn't pick up the bodies fast enough. So the people who lived through that were beginning to reckon with that a few months later. Um, and, you know, the, that sort of sense of suffering, that sense of lone, loneliness and isolation um, is palpable in those letters and, and in how they thought about their experiences. And you find a lot of them also um, thinking about, you know, why it was that they weren't helping their family members or members of their communities and saying things like, you know, I, you know we used to be a very cohesive community or, you know, I wish that I had gone and seen my sister. Uh, kind of thing. Very early, you know, so early into 1919, um, not long after that. And I think some of us maybe are reckoning with things like that today. Now, that's not, you know, that's not a profound kind of psychological illness. It's sort of a, a an introspective sense of, a, of awareness about, you know, what has just happened. And I think they have a kind of, as I said before, survivor guilt from coming through this. Um, and then there's some other levels here too, you know, the, the doctors and nurses in particular um, seem to have had PTSD. Um, this was really traumatic for them. So the, think about how much more modest the public health infrastructure was in 1918 and 1919. You had nothing like what you have today. So the hospitals are rapidly overwhelmed. Then they built these tent camps in lots of places. Again, this was much like what we were planning for and preparing across the West. And in fact, saw in many places in Italy, for instance, you had tent camps and you had all kinds of uh, you know, secondary and tertiary ways to try to care for people when they were overwhelmed. So doctors, you see this in, uh, particularly among um, doctors in the ranks of the U.S. Army. Um, Victor Vaughn is the most famous one uh, who, who becomes a Surgeon General of the Army and, and um, encounters influenza. He had actually been the, like, the founding editor of the Infectious Disease Journal of that era. Uh, and when he encounters these terrible influ influenza cases in the second wave at, at uh, Camp Devens outside Boston, um, he says like it's nothing he's ever seen before. 
Um, you know, and there's there's these terrible accounts, and I've some some of my big public talks I've begun with this. You know, the 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 bodies were stacking up like cordwood. We couldn't keep up with them, and then you so you find with these doctors who were pretty you know, um, experienced with all kinds of heinous things. A lot of them, the oldest ones had come through the, the Civil War um, or, their, or their parents had come through the Civil War and they, you know, they'd been living with amputees and, and all kinds, or, or they'd fought in uh, 1898. Um, and so they were where some of them had been participants in some brutality against Filipinos, for instance, you know, waterboarding, the water cure. I mean, some pretty terrible stuff had happened in their lived experience. And this was by far the worst thing that they experienced as medical professionals. Um, and they couldn't help, they couldn't help their, their patients. They were dropping dead. The, the uh, many nurses and doctors were dropping dead, even though they were trying to wear masks, practice all kinds of hygiene. Um, and so, you know, they had this, uh, this PTSD, you know, is probably the best way to think about it. Real post, post traumatic um, disorders of various kinds. Uh, and so what you find is that, say, a decade later, a lot of these nurses and doctors refuse to talk about the pandemic at all. And so when you think about the kind of what used to be said about the 1918 pandemic, that it was forgotten, um, part of that was the willful forgetting by those who have been so badly traumatized by it. You find it in literature, you find it in the arts, um, you find it in people's memoirs, but you don't find it quite as much. Why? Well, one speculation I would have is because of how much trauma, because of how much suffering people went through. Uh, and you can think about this a little bit like a wartime experiences, right? A lot of, you know, uh, GIs come back and don't want to talk about it. They simply will not share those experiences, no matter you know, with whom, you know, their loved ones, uh, either, even fellow people who had gone through that trauma. Um, and so I think that's an important way to understand not just 1918, 19, but what, how we may be feeling in five or 10 years, and certainly how medical professionals will be, because they've taken the brunt of the brutality. And you have to think about now, an added dimension is they're seeing people come in here in the US, you know, who are unvaccinated, right? They could have possibly prevented these worst outcomes of being on ventilators and dying. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And they haven't, for whatever reasons, done that. So that's got to be eating at these medical professionals in different sorts of ways. You know, this is potentially preventable, at least the worst outcomes to some extent. It obviously was not in 1918 and 19. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's an article last week, or maybe it was this week in the New York Times about a community in the Ozarks that are refusing en masse to take the vaccine and what that means for the, the hospital staff. And half the hospital staff are unwilling to take the vaccine as well. So you've even got this divide among doctors and nurses who disagree, even though they're, you know, some of them are, are especially trained. Back in 1918 or 19, there wasn't a vaccine, was there? No, but actually it's, it's sort of interesting. No, but yes, or yes, but no, the classic historian's answer, right? Um, so there was a race for vaccines. They knew about vaccines. You know, I like to argue that there's, you might call it an inoculation tradition in, in American uh, society and medicine. So going back, you know, we know Ben Franklin, for instance, famously just lamented for the whole rest of his life that he hadn't had his son who died at the age of three um, inoculated against smallpox. You know, a famously George Washington forced all uh, incoming troops into the Revolutionary Army to be inoculated and sent smallpox immune troops to occupy Boston when there was a smallpox outbreak. And I could go on and on. We could just have a, we could spend the whole podcast on that. So look, American politicians, American citizens have known for a long time, inoculation, vaccination, they're not quite the same thing, but damn close, uh, you know, uh, has been a thing in American society to prevent, you know, the worst kinds of outbreaks. Um, so, you know, uh, there was a search in 1918 for a vaccine or for a way to create, to take live virus, get it into bodies. So that would be like an inoculation and then prevent, you know, uh, get some kind of immune uh, system response, right? So they had that sense, germ theory then. It wasn't viral theory. You don't get, uh, you know, um, that until the 40s, until uh, the World War II context. Um, but uh, so they raced to get these vaccines made. Um, they're, they're actually a train speeds across the country to try to inoculate um, troops being inducted into the army on the West coast, none of these vaccines that are developed, and there are a number of them are effective. Public health officials keep trying to, to say, look, we're, we're modern medicine, you know, is going to tr find some cures and treatments for this disease. We're hoping the vaccines will work. And then public health officials push back and say, wait, we're not seeing that they're very effective. They come into drugstores, drugstores try to sell them. Um, you know, then there's some quack versions of vaccines that go out, misinformation about this. Then there's other levels. Vicks VapoRub will help cure you. You know, there's some, some breathing kinds of nebulizer kinds of things, treatments to put on your face. Um, so there's a variety of these that, that come up. But in any case, vaccines are rushed across the US. They don't work. Um, but, you know, people were desperately trying to get a vaccine. And for me, one thing that stands out is how much uh, so many Americans in 1918 and 19 wanted effective treatments. And it's, it's kind of shocking, although, you know, the majority of Americans um, do want treatments now, right? It's not, it's not as if they don't, but, but a significant subset who are 
quite vocal have rejected treatments and and you don't have a sense of that in the in the literature from 1918 to 19 you don't have the sense of rejection wholesale rejection of all treatments if anything there's an a, an embrace of all kinds of outlandish ways of trying to treat this and you might say that we've seen some of that um, in recent times as well um, so th th that that may be a way that, that human beings attempt to uh, assert some control over something that seems so radically outside their control and I would also add, you know, if you're thinking about that context, in 1918 and 19, the best estimates are that about 675,000 Americans die uh, from the flu out of a population of about 103 million. Um, by our best estimates right now, um, by mid to late October 2021, 675,000 Americans will have died from this pandemic. Um, then they only had non-pharmaceutical interventions and a rudimentary, that is, you know, all the social distancing and the closure policies and a rudimentary public health infrastructure. Now we've got effective vaccines, you know, a modern, uh, modern public health infrastructure, all kinds of knowledge about viruses and how they spread. You know, we've all become amateur epidemiologists over the course of the last what, almost two years. So it is pretty shocking. And I think, you know, you're talking about vaccines, you're, we're talking about sort of looking at this, the current moment through the prism of that past pandemic 100 years ago. It's pretty striking um, that we have so many more tools in our toolkit today, and yet a comparable number of Americans will die. Now, you know, granted, there's 330 or million or so Americans now, so the population is about a third, uh, two thirds larger, but um, that, that no one was predicting this. None of the scholars that I was talking to in February and March of 2020 thought it would be anywhere near that. And in fact, the Trump administration said if it could be kept under 100,000 deaths, um, they, would, they would count that you know, a success. They thought that that would be uh, you know, a kind of a threshold beyond which it was almost impossible to go over. And we're looking at you know, more than six times that, which is a tragedy. But again, this gets back to that early point about suffering and abstraction. At what point are those numbers too big? And we talk about this when we think about military history and you know, other kinds of social experiences and political experiences that are so traumatizing and have such large numbers, it's hard to personalize them. Um, and that's really the essential work that I think historians have done so well in giving us social histories of you know, that pandemic. And that's the kind of work we'll be doing for quite a while in, in getting compiling the narratives of this pandemic, frankly. Yeah, I think that's exactly what we do around thinking about the numbers and determining what success looks like. I think there's also probably a limit to what we're humanly capable of um, dealing with. And so I think one of the things that's happened with COVID is that a certain fatigue is, is set in at stages. Uh, maybe it was after a wave, or, or maybe it's just now people have been dealing with this for almost two years. There's a, there's a fatigue that you just, you can't avoid. So I'm wondering if that was the case back then as well as if, you know, by 1919, it doesn't disappear. We know it doesn't disappear, but the fatigue gets to be so overwhelming that we, we just need to move on. Yeah, you know, I think um, that's where some of the parallels break down a little bit. There certainly is some fatigue over uh, closure policies and then uh, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, but they they last. They're a lot shorter. Influenza's, you know. Um, Influenza burns through populations more rapidly, and so you know in the fall of 1918, you don't you don't have those interventions going on for much longer than say, you know September through December 
or you know in some cities august to january or you see them flipped on and off repeatedly the different kinds of closure measures gradual reopening and then then a slamming the door shut as the best method for making sure there's no more infection so people certainly do manifest a kind of you know discomfort with and fatigue of those kinds of measures and special interests back then lobbied to reopen right businesses especially there's a great case in denver where the like the leisure industry pushes really really hard to reopen and that creates a new new spike you know they people they want people in theaters they want people in billiard halls and there's a new spike a big bad spike and so that's one of the things that we know about why you would want to have a very gradual reopening because then you can track the data about infections um but you, you know you don't see that this is just a lot, a lot longer, frankly. We're living through something that's a lot longer. The mutations of Delta, um, for, to my mind, call, call us to attend to thinking about how the Delta variant is like the second wave, potentially, of 1918. And so all of what we've seen from you know the first half of beginning of 2020 up through, let's say, early summer or late spring 2021, is analogous to variations of the first wave in, in 1918 and 19, believe it or not. And so Delta I might- we, Chris, I thought yeah. we were going to get some good news here. That yeah, this right. Is, you know, we're, uh, you know I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm sorry. fatigued. Yeah, right. <laughs> as am I. But, I. but I do think, you know, you know, we're seeing certainly in the US, UK, a bunch of other, Germany, France, a lot of large population countries um, having these infections uh, and, and spikes, right? And so, you know, Delta seems- somewhat like the second wave. Um, and, and yet we've been at it for so long. And so I, it seems lo logical to me, and this is not the historian's sensibility anymore, but just, you know, it, of course we're fatigued, right? This is, this is so much longer than that, that first wave into the second wave then. Um, and then, then the open question, and this is, this is what, you know, we often talk about when I do public talks about this is like, even what counts as a wave or a surge. And at some point that's just, it's not useful for us, uh, right? We're living through an infectious disease that is, that is doing certain things in our population right now, that is higher infections, death rates, hospitalizations. So you just have to take account of that. And, and one should probably not be counting them. This is this the fourth wave or the second this, or, you know, um, and then they didn't then, um, and so if you were living in 1918 and 19, um, there was no first wave effectively. Nobody thought about it that way. The second wave was the wave, if you're looking at the medical, you know, uh, professional literature of that period. And then you get a, their second wave would have been what we now would think of as the third. So into, into the winter of 1919, and then it becomes endemic. And now you just have flu, you know, in, in 1920, a whole lot of people die, um, but nowhere near as many as 1918. And, and the flu then becomes that endemic, you know, seasonal flu that we were talking about before. Um, people aren't fatigued then of it, right? They, they try to avoid it. Um, they have some treatment strategies, but they also don't have vaccines or any other hopes. So they just have to go about their lives. And so for me, now thinking back as a historian, what's the parallel? At some point, we're all just going to have to go back, you know, to our lives, taking those risks in hand, probably after everybody is eligible for vaccines and enough people have had them. And who knows what that number is, and it may never be perfect. Um, and that's, probably the best way to generate a parallel to say 1920, 1921. Yes, people are still getting the flu in far larger numbers than they did before this H1N1 came up in 1918 or 1917. There's some evidence that it was on the French front then, and there's some evidence that it might've emerged in Indochina and Vietnam or, or in China itself. Um, but in any case, the virulent form of the flu that we think of as the Spanish, so-called Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, arrives on the scene you know, in spring 1918. 
And eventually by 1920, 1921, people are just living with the flu, right? Is that what COVID looks like in 2024? Seems likely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the Spanish part of the Spanish flu, because we've, we've got to talk about the politics of that. I mean, I don't know the answer, but I'm hoping that you do in that, you know, it is a flu. It's an influenza, but we, we attribute the name Spanish. You mentioned the Delta variant, which is the WHO is just, you know, decided to give it Greek initials. And hopefully we don't go further into the alphabet. But um, the Delta variant was the Indian variant. There was the Kent variant. Why Why did we attribute the Spanish flu to Spain when as far as I know, it was an American, uh, the infection started in Kansas, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's a great wartime story. And it's a story that everybody is familiar with once you hear it, in a way. Uh, it, it just, it makes sense. So in the wartime context, uh, the U.S. press, the British press were censored. Um, so the, in the U.S., it's the Sedition Acts. Um uh, 1917 and 1918 in the in the British system, it's Defense of the Realm Act from 1914. Uh, both prevent any publications that will um, undermine the war effort. So famously, Eugene Debs, the socialist five-time candidate for president, gets sent to jail for a speech in Canton, Ohio in 1918 for speaking out against the draft. That's one of the kinds of examples of this. He said, is the draft constitutional? Gets thrown to jail. Um, that's the kind of thing. So, so when um, news of that the first wave was coming out, um, the British and American press don't say anything pretty much. You don't get really any reporting of how 24, I believe out of 36 or so large army bases in the US have large outbreaks um, in, in April, March, April, May of, of 1918. So it's demonstrably true. And any local reporter there could see that a lot of troops were out, right? They weren't dying, but they were out. Um, some were dying, but but not the large numbers that you see later. So, but they're not reporting on that. You, you hear some very scattered reporting on, you know, is it a new kind of a, a grip, the grip, this, this old kind of um, uh, pneumonia-like uh, cold or heavy cold. Um, but uh, in May 1918, the Spanish press says uh, that King Alfonso XIII has become uh, very sick. And some accounts in the Spanish press talk about people walking along the street and just dropping dead. Uh, and immediately being hospitalized. And a lot of the um, kind of aristocracy in Spain um, also gets sick. There's a real outbreak uh, amongst the most elite folks. Now, why are they reporting on this? Well, because they're neutral in the war. They're not actually involved in the war and they don't have the same censorship laws. You can, you can Google this, listeners can Google this. Uh, you can find in the Anglo-American press these really quite racist, highly politicized accounts uh, in uh, talking about the quote unquote um, climate and hygiene of the Spanish as breeding this new flu, the Spanish flu. Uh, right in that moment. And so uh, May, June, you, there's Associated Press reports uh, that, that push this forward. You know, the king has a really bad disease uh, case in Spain. Uh, a lot of other people have been affected. Uh, and then in the British press, it's, oh, well, it won't come here, right? Their climate is so bad. It's their hygiene that's so bad. It won't come to us. Like, we've got this handled. Um, now, so th that's the origins of the Spanish flu concept. Uh, but a lot of other nations politicize and weaponize that the flu as well. So you see uh, the Germans referring to it as the Russian pest. Um, the Spanish call it a French flu because they, they think that French war workers brought it to them. Uh, Russians attribute it to a whole lot of folks, uh, Germans, there's the Chinese. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of um, 
sort of politicized and racist uh, deployment of the flu as a way to other um, your, your literal others in the wartime context. And so it shouldn't have surprised us that Donald Trump and other folks were talking about the Wuhan or China flu or even more you know, repugnant, talking about the Kung flu. You know, th this kind of language has been with us you know, for over a hundred years. And this kind of um, use of thinking about viruses as located in certain kinds of populations and, and coming from those populations because of their inferior qualities is very much you know, an artifact of kind of Gilded Age and Progressive Era thinking, right? This thinking that there's something innate to people, inferior peoples um, that makes them more of a breeding ground for viruses, diseases. You, you, you know, you, you'll be talking about this in other podcasts, I'm sure, questions of eugenics, how to breed in better qualities into people. Uh, and then whether or not different peoples have certain capacities um, to improve, either to improve physically so that they wouldn't be sick or to improve mentally to become, say, better Democrats or something like that. So th this is very much of that era. Um, the, the thing that I often emphasize you know, people say, oh, well, it, you know, you should uh, maybe referring to where a disease originates makes sense. Um, but of course, you know, it didn't, as you said, right, necessarily originate. Most historians think that the disease vectors are best traced back to Kansas um, in February and March 1918. And you can watch them move on U.S. troop transports across the U.S. to the Atlantic coast and then across the Atlantic um, to the to the war front. An example of this is that U.S. troop transports start getting met um, by uh, hearses and, and hospital carriages because troops are becoming sick and incapacitated en route across the Atlantic. So we, we can find that. We see that in the records. So we know that American doctors are not saying it's a Spanish flu. By the fall of 1918, they're not, they, they call it the Spanish flu, um, but they're saying we don't believe it originated there. You can virtually every medical professional in the Anglo-American context in fall 1918 does not think it came from Spain. Now they, they differ on where they think it came from, but that's not medically important or relevant to them in the least. Um, and so Delta makes more sense. Just pick, you know, I, I think it makes perfect sense to pick sort of more um, prima facie neutral language, like a Greek letter, um, and run with that. Now, they also didn't know about mutations very well or any of that sort of stuff that, that we can now track. And, and there's much more complicated names and terms, right, that that epidemiologists use and people doing the genetic sequencing. Um, but those, we need to have quick shorthands for these too, right? So now we fear the next mutation, let's call it something that isn't racist, that isn't heavily politicized and see if we can act from that. There's one other element that I think is useful to bring up. So you could argue that it isn't the worst thing to try to make an invisible virus something more visible in terms of calling people to action. Now, the language we choose is really important there and words matter, but perhaps a another choice of language might be more effective than COVID or coronavirus in getting people to take more precautions. Um, influenza may be the same thing. And perhaps the Spanishness, the otherness um, in the context of the war, in particular with patriotism and sacrifice being out there in the milieu, may have been useful to some extent. And, and also the same language, say the Russian pest or some of these other terms, right? This And, and so, you know, it's also worth us just considering how that language might actually impact human behavior. Um, and, and there isn't good reason for us to think uh, one way or the other from the historical record there. And I, you know, and clearly, as I've said, racist politicized language, uh, and I try in my writing to not talk about Spanish quote unquote flu, but to talk about the influenza pandemic or epidemic. Um, but that said, you know, maybe there are alternative languages that could be more useful than Delta.
Yeah, and we've heard a little bit of that. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And we've heard uh, presidents and governors talk about the invisible enemy. And that's a that's a way to galvanize support for either vaccination or for washing your hands. But uh, and I, I just think this is maybe one of the lessons that we have learned. It's taken us 100 years plus, you know, whether it was SARS, South Asian, MERS, Middle Eastern, you know, we put geographies on these things and that's a, that's a political act. And maybe this is one of the lessons that we've learned. And I think that's something to applaud. I wonder, are there any other lessons that we've learned from 1918 to 2019 that were, uh, that really stood out in what you've been reading? Wow, yeah. Um, well, I, th I think that's a great lesson. You know, I hope, that moving forward, if there are more pandemics, we, we move away from this regional kind of vilification. You know, one one related lesson is that viruses know no national boundaries, and and even um, say travel restrictions don't seem to stop things in a globalized world. And one connection there that I, that I think is worth everybody who's thinking about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era to consider is that that was the era of globalization. You know, effectively though there weren't you know, um, intercontinental, transcontinental flights, you know, through shipping, through rail, through everything else, this, that disease, that virus got around the world in six months, you know, pretty much like what happened in 2020. Uh, you know, so that globalized world um, is, is a world in which collectivities matter. So one lesson that I would pull from that globalization ethos and reality um, is that coming out of World War One, coming out of that flu pandemic, the League of Nations sought to create um, a health body, health organization that would do things like regulate vaccine developments um, and try to stop infectious disease, malaria, that sort of thing. Due to local, state, national politics, the U.S., as we all know, rejects, the Senate rejects membership in the League of Nations. The U.S. doesn't join that body, doesn't work uh, to prevent um, future outbreaks, future pandemics. Um, and then and another piece of that puzzle is unlike other countries. So Canada, for instance, um, in 1919, develops a, a public health infrastructure in its first federal you know, state uh, public health infrastructure. The US Health Service, Public Health Service, um, is very much inadequate to the job. And that is not a lesson that's learned after that pandemic, um, that you need to stockpile, um, that you need to have you know, a, a plan of attack for future pandemics, um, and that you need that, that viruses that know no borders and boundaries um, need to be handled in an international context. And so you know, this is very similarly after World War II, this is something I, I think about a lot. The US uh, didn't literally did not have a seat on the World Health Organization. It took a Russian diplomat um, to step up to get the US up to a seat at the World Health Organization. And that was largely out of this kind of parochial thinking that the US was an exceptional nation and that the US um, didn't wanna be constrained by the health uh, mandates of international bodies. Um, but again, the reality is that, you know, had, had the US been a more robust participant in these, these kinds of international bodies, different kinds of outcomes might've been possible. And that's the, orientation that I would push us to think about today, that, that the U.S. has to be a major player in global public health. You know, one of the books and projects I've been working on a lot lately has been about grant strategy, and that the U.S. needs to have a robust global public health grant strategy, um, not as a kind of hegemon, but as a partner, as a real cooperative partner. So for instance, if you think about what's going on in the world today, the U.S. being um, a, a major vaccine uh, producer um, and donor in the world community with no strings attached. So lots of 
past humanitarian medical public health projects have had a lot of strings attached. Um, that would be one place that I would, would point us to think about a lesson learned. So after the first pandemic, the US doesn't join into that. And after World War II, when the US is taking a leadership role, the US still doesn't uh, step up as a full contributor. So now maybe after the COVID uh, pandemic, or at least in the midst of it, we're, maybe we're seeing some of that with the Biden administration now. You know, I think one other major lesson that's worth us all considering as we think about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, is this, as an era of inequality, right? Um, one of the confounding factors of that era is that uh, most of the people who died, roughly a half, maybe even as many as two thirds, were from the um, youngest and healthiest population uh, group, so roughly 18 to 45. Um, and a lot of them were you know, regular blue collar workers, people in the war work industries, uh, soldiers, mothers. It has all kinds of effects on the next generation or next two generations. People in the U.S. and demographers have studied this. Um, but it, but uh, so in turn, but it, so the disease felt unequally. Uh, the oldest and the very youngest didn't uh, die or have as many bad effects. Um, when we look around the world today, when we look around the US, for instance, um, the you know many uh, marginalized groups, um, ha uh, some of the oldest citizens uh, have been suffering disproportionately. You know, frontline uh, workers um, who don't usually get considered in those terms, say grocery store workers, delivery people, um, have been the most exposed. And so if you think about the kind of reform ethos of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, it went nowhere in terms of the inequality of this in the 1920s. You know, so the open question for us today, thinking about a lesson from that, is um, you know, what are the kinds of reforms that are possible to help uh, provide better health care or health and safety um, for those legitimately now exposed frontline workers, workers who we didn't think we relied on in the same fundamental ways as we now has been just absolutely cemented and proven. Um, that strikes me as something that's very important to look at. And you also can look in different sorts of ways at inequality in terms of race. Um, so one of the staggering things that I think historians haven't grappled with enough is that in 1918 in the US, in many areas, segregation was so bad that the viruses actually did not always get to African-American communities. There was enough limited interaction that the, in some pockets say, of the American South, um, actually African-American folks um, did not suffer as much as their white nearby neighbors. Um, now that's not entirely true. Uh, Native reservations, for instance, indigenous people suffered pretty badly. We don't have great statistics on this. And I've been talking to a lot of colleagues who work on this, who think we may be slightly off. Um, but back then segregation functioned such that it was a little bit of a buffer. Um, today, it's the opposite, right? And so people of color uh, in the US um, and around the world, uh, particularly in you know, countries that have colonial and racist past, um, those folks have suffered uh, disproportionately, right? And so again, thinking about the, the reform ethos of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, now that this has been exposed, you know, what um, does that make us see today in different ways? Um, you know, in the 20s, you know, you saw rising xenophobia, you saw the rise of the Klan, immigration restriction, this othering became the dominant way of thinking about who and what counts in American society. I'm very hopeful that in the 2020s, we will not see, you know, a full on othering and that in fact, you know, more robust social safety nets, public health safety, um, this has been exposed as absolutely necessary. I'm not optimistic that that'll get through Congress anytime soon, but I don't think that the society is likely to go down the full 1920s path that the US did. But as we both know, historians are bad at predicting the future. I can't thank you enough, Chris, for coming on the show and talking about this. You are just, just your insight and your, your, your 
the pictures that you've been sharing on Twitter have just been remarkable. They've absolutely gripped me. Yeah, thank you, Michael. I mean, I think the, the main takeaway is how eerily similar that pandemic is to this one, from the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the closure policies and all that, to some battles over some of the mandates, to the politics of this, to the attempts by medical professionals to handle this, to our personal suffering, you know, to the kinds of traumas that, we're, that, that, that are impacting us that we may not fully appreciate in real time. You know, it is eerily similar. Um, and I think we, it benefits us all to understand that history better because we're living through a truly historic moment now. And if I can just give one more plug, if you haven't seen uh, Chris's Twitter feed, you've got to get out there. You've got to see these images because it's one thing for him to say, you know, that there's there's parallels. He, you know, he puts it right in your face when you see the masks on. And we'll, we'll share some of those images images on the show notes as well. But it's right there in black and white. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.